Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. I am like so excited to preach on Mark because I personally, I love book studies. I love just going through just books of the Bible and whatever it is that God wants to speak from that passage. I, I really believe the Holy Spirit is just going to speak to us. He's going to fill us in our hearts with something. And uh, I'm just excited to see what God is going to do for us this morning. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1. The next section is going to be verses 14 to 45. So uh, just scroll there to your devices. And uh, we're going to be covering this whole series called Preparation. What does it mean as Jesus starts his ministry to prepare not only himself, how is God preparing him for his ministry and for his, his journey and for his, his cross and his resurrection, but how is he preparing us in our hearts. And I think a lot of this, this idea of preparation comes when we think about what's valuable. In order to prepare us for a journey, we have, to, we have to count the cost. We have to understand what's important to us. And when I was thinking about this, this idea of importance or value, uh, one of the things that came to mind was uh, just the, the, the length of time that people are willing to wait for something that is good. The length of time or the, the lo- length of time that you're willing to stand in line to queue up for something that's good. I don't know if any of you have like, I don't know what the longest time you've ever queued for a restaurant has been. Like some of us are like, we can't wait longer than 10 minutes. And then we go to the next restaurant near next door. Some of us, we're willing to wait like 30 minutes, an hour, because that restaurant is so good that you just got to get a piece of that whatever you know, avocado, you know, whatever millennials eat these days, like avocado toast with, you know, eggs and poured over the hollandaise sauce. And, you know, you got that little fresh squeezed smoothie that you make. And anyways, that's a millennial thing. Gen Z, you're like, what the heck is that? Um, And there are a lot of things that we're willing to wait in line that are so important or so valuable to us that we're willing to wait in line for hours for. And I I don't know if any of you have been part of this, you know, um, craze in the U.S. You've ever seen, like, Black Friday deals where people like line up overnight just to get the newest thing. Or iPhone, when it first came, I don't think I've ever seen lines for iPhone 14. It's like, people are like, well, who cares now, nowadays? But it used to be. It used to be people would line up in front of the Apple store just to get the first iPhone. Now, the, the thing with waiting in line for so long is because we, we feel like that's an experience or we feel like it's something that's going to make our lives better or if it's something that we value so dearly. But the tension is, what is it that's so valuable that we're willing to not only just wait in line for, but we're willing to give our lives for? And it's not quite giving your life for, but you know, recently, those of you who you know, know the news and everything that's going on, you know the, the, the late queen passed away in England. And she is like the longest reigning monarch, 70 years. There were presidents and dignitaries that flew in just to pay their respects, just to honor her life and her majesty. And when you look at her life and you look at the number of people that came just to see her, just to pass by her coffin, just to pay some respects, it it is some of the most incredible show of affection and display and worth and value on a single person's life in recent history. I, I wanted to show you a couple photos of the lines that were there of people just wanting to pass by the coffin of the queen. I, I don't know how many of you are like willing to wait hours, but people literally were standing for hours just to pass by her coffin. So this is just the zigzag line. The next one is 
uh, the river down, I think it's the Thames River, um, and, and it literally stretched like a whole breadth of the river. And not only that, if you, there, were, uh, there were reports from, I think, space.com, like you could see the line for the queen from space. Like it's like the Great Wall of China, right? The, the, the rumor, you could see the Great Wall from space. You could see the line for the queen from space. That's how long the line was. And just to give you a little glimpse, I wanted to show you uh, just a quick time-lapse video of someone who walked the length of the line. There's no audio, just, and we don't have to turn the lights off, just to give you a glimpse of what it looks like. It's just 20 seconds of someone going along the whole line, and it just keeps going and going and going, and you're realizing that the, the line moves fast, and there's not much time to stand. And there were some reports that the line was as long as the wait to see the queen was as long as 24 hours. Can you imagine staying awake 24 hours, moving every couple minutes, inching forward, not being able to sleep, simply to see the queen? Uh, some other things that was really interesting, there's an there's a overview of the whole line. At the maximum length of the line, the, the length was 16 kilometers. Those of you who are on the island, it's li literally going from Kennedy Town to Taiwan. And person to person lined up like that. Those of you who are on Kowloon, New Territories, it's like half the distance from Toon Moon to TST. That's how long the line was. And it's literally just filled with people. And at the end, people were turned away from the queue because they were saying it was too long. And they had, to, had a cutoff at some point. And I wanted to give us a picture of what was it that people were willing to line up for? Why was it they were willing to stay in line for 24 hours just to inch forward slowly, just to go by the queen's coffin. And I want to give a, just a, a little quote from a, a reporter that went up and talked to some of these people. This is what he says. This is an eyewitness account. He says this, I arrived on the South Bank in the early hours, saw a vast river of people going from County Hall, past the London Eye, the National Theater, the South Bank Center, Shakespeare's Globe, all the way to London Bridge. Those of us who've never been to London, you're like, this means nothing to me, but it's, a, it's quite a long distance. There's always a danger that if you ask people why they've come, they repeat what they've heard in the news. I've come to pay my respects, or I had to be there. There's a formula that hides what they're really thinking, so I pressed a few people and asked what they meant, and it seemed to me to come down to values. Yes, of course, there's a desire to be there in a moment of history and to pay respects to someone who's been on the throne for 70 years, but the values people mention are those they think are missing from public life. They talk about service, duty, selflessness, empathy, and the ability of Her Majesty to speak just a few words to capture a moment and to help them through, whether that's during the COVID crisis or in response to terror attacks. Those values, I think, are why people are here in such numbers." End quote. I don't know if the iPhone provides you those kind of values. I don't know if that restaurant provides you that kind of satisfaction. There's something about the way the queen lived that, that spurs something, that elicits something for someone to say, and not just someone, thousands and hundreds and millions of, of people who probably couldn't even travel to the UK to pay their respects, that would have wanted to be there, to be able to say there's something about her life, there's something so valuable about her esteem, about her selflessness, about her love, about her courage, that makes them want to do that. And I think this is a small glimpse of things that we all long for. It's a small glimpse of the, the type of life that we would all love to live. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of us, we would love to have that many millions of people wanting to go to our funeral? We would want our lives to be significant in that sense. 
the small glimpse of the eternal things that we long for, the significance that we hope for, the purpose that we want to experience, the love that we want to demonstrate. And I think it's a small glimpse of not just this queen of the UK, of the, this monarchy, but it's a small glimpse of the king that we serve in the kingdom that we are part of in the kingdom of God. Now, if, if people can honor a, a human queen like this, how much more ought we to live our lives for our king? How much more ought we to shift our whole perspective and say, 24 hours, that's nothing compared to my whole life to live it for King Jesus? Sorry, my hand hit the... It wasn't intentional. And this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what Mark wants to illustrate, is if... Is Jesus our king? Is Jesus so valuable? And what is the kingdom of God like that it would demand, it would, it would require us our whole lives to be able to honor and, and wonder at who he is? And the topic or the first two verses gives us the whole thrust, the whole main focus of this passage, verse 14 and 15 in Mark 1. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is our king. This is Mark's focus. This is what Jesus is trying to usher into our lives to say the kingdom is here and the king is here. And we ought to recognize him as our king. We ought to see the worth and the majesty of who he is and give our lives for him. That's why the one thing for this morning is that preparing for the kingdom of God means repenting and believing in the gospel. Preparing for the kingdom of God means repenting and believing in the gospel. Mark divides this whole thing up into three movements. And it's to help us to understand, it's to unpackage what does it mean for the kingdom of God to be here? What does it mean to repent and believe? And I believe Mark has a word for us this morning. And we're going to look at what it demands, what the kingdom of God demands, how the kingdom of God is demonstrated. We're going to finish with why the kingdom of God is disguised. So again, it's what is, what is demanded, how it is demonstrated, and why it's disguised. The first point that we're looking at here is what it demands. We're going to read verses 16 to 20. And again, uh, if you follow along in the mobile app or your life group leader sent out notes, there's going to be the passage right there that you can read along. Verse 16 to 20, it says this, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So we're looking at the context of everything of what is the kingdom of God like? Because remember, verse 14 and 15 were the topic sentence. He was saying, the kingdom, the time of the field, the kingdom of God is here or is at hand. It is near. So repent and believe. So what is the kingdom of God like? What, what does it demand when people are encountering the kingdom of God? What do they respond with? And we see Jesus, he's now interacting with several people, two pairs of fishermen, James and John, Simon and Andrew. And in these two encounters, we see there are several things that Jesus and the kingdom demands. It demands a response from all people that he encounters. The first thing, it, it demands a surrendered heart. It demands us to surrender all things. It's, it's unusual, Jesus' encounter with these men in the way that he called them is because 
Jesus at that time, somehow people already knew him as a rabbi, as a teacher. And teachers at that time, what they would typically do is they would wait for students to come and pick them. There was a sense of dignity that way. You, you, don't, you don't demote yourself as a teacher and go look for students to increase your popularity. Students come to you. Students pick uh, who you are. And on, on the side of the students, too, you're looking for the best teacher. You're looking for those who are most eloquent. You're looking for those that agree most with your values. And we, we all know that. We've been through that process. All of us who've been part of university, do your universities pick you? No way. You pick your university. And of course, whether they accept you or not is up to them. But you still choose which universities you want to apply to. Those of us who are working, do the companies like choose you? I mean, maybe the headhunter, the recruiter that's trying to make some money. But does, 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 does HSBC email you, call you specifically, hey, I think you're the awesomest person in the whole world. You got to come work for us. No, they don't do that. You apply for them. Why? Because you're looking at the job, you're looking at the salary, you're looking at the position, you're looking at the role, and you're saying, what's best for me? How can I find the best opportunity? And Jesus completely reverses that. He says, instead of the students choosing me, I'm going to choose the students. He's the one that goes to John and James and Simon and Andrew and says, I'm going to call you to come and follow me. And while that seems like flattering, what does it mean for the students? It means you have to give up your preferences, your desires, your concept of what's right, your future. Now, if you know, your dream job asked you, hey, you come work for us. You, of course, you'd be like, hallelujah. But what if this no-name company said, I, I choose you, come work for me? You'd be like, uh. Those of you who got into your dream school, you're like, oh, that's great. But those of us who didn't get into our dream school, if that non-dream school said, hey, you're going to come and study at my school and you have no other choice. Well, some of us, we didn't have choice. What was your reaction? Was it like, yes, I'm so excited? No, you were like, oh, if only I had gotten to HKU or UST or NUS. And there's an element of surrender of like, this is not what I planned. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I hoped for. This is not what I desired. But the gospel, the kingdom of God demands us, our lives, regardless of what we desire, regardless of what we want. And it not only demands surrender, it demands sacrifice. You'll notice the, 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 the two encounters that Jesus had with these two sets of fishermen, they're very similar. He calls and they leave something. He calls and they leave something. He calls the first pair and what do they leave? They leave their nets. He calls the second pair, and what do they leave? They leave their father. Now, did the first pair only leave their nets and not their father? I don't think so. Did the second pair only leave their father and not their nets? I don't think so. But I think what Mark is using nets and their father as an illustration of there are some significant things that you need to learn to sacrifice if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God. What are the nets? The nets are their livelihood, their security, their competence. Their sense of worth and identity. He's saying you have to give that up if you want to be part of the kingdom of God. What, is, what does the father represent? It's the family. It's the relationship. It's the comfort. You have to learn to sacrifice and give that up if you want to be part of the kingdom of God. 
These are the most important things in anyone's life. Your sense of security, your sense of worth, your sense of identity, your sense of community, your sense of family. Jesus is saying, give all those things up. The kingdom of God demands all things subservient to himself. And if any of these things keep a hold on your heart more than Jesus Christ, more than the kingdom of God, then you are not really in the kingdom of God. Mark, he implies this when he calls these fishermen, but he tells it to us explicitly several chapters later in Mark 8, verse 30, 40, 35. He says, And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. Read it together in the yellow. Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Is that not a challenging word for us? To be able to say, God, if, if there's anything that is, we're holding on to our, of ourselves, that is something that Jesus calls us to deny, to deny ourselves, to deny our own desire, to deny our wants, to deny our own comforts, to deny our own hopes and security and everything, to take up our cross, to follow him. And if we try to save our lives in any meaningful way, then we are losing our lives and it's only when we are losing, willing to lose our lives whole for God's sake, for his kingdom's sake, will we really find it. Now, I don't think what Jesus is saying is literally you shall cut off all relationship with your family, never talk to them. Because if you read later in the Gospels, does James and John ever talk to their father Zebedee? Of course, they do. Does that mean they never could ever go fishing? They can never touch fish again. You're allergic to fish, so never touch fish again. No. In fact, they go fishing again. They eat fish. They probably ate fish all throughout their journey with Jesus because fish was the most common meat in that time. He's not saying you literally cannot have anything to do with those things, but he's saying what takes precedent in your life? What is king in your life? If it is not Jesus, then you are not part of his kingdom. You're simply part of your own. Those of you who don't, I mean, those of you uh, how many families we have? Husbands and wives? Families? Parents? Yes? Parents? Couple? All right. Parents will know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are yet to be parents, you're, you're, you're going to realize this. Like when, when you have a kid, you're going to realize like there's a whole new level of surrender and sacrifice that you've never understood before. Like I thought like, you know, single adult life was surrendering, you know, oh my gosh, now my eight, nine, ten hours a day, Monday through Friday, is taken up by my boss. And man, i got to surrender that. All I have is now my evenings. I'm like, oh man, that was hard to surrender. Now, I'm like, I can't do the basic things that I want to do anymore. Like, when's the last time I went to play basketball? When's the last time I could play video games on my own? When's the last time I could just get away, be by myself, go for a solo hike whenever I wanted to? When's the last time I could do X, Y, and Z thing that I wanted to whenever I wanted to, and I didn't have to tell anyone. I didn't have to get permission. <laughs> and now, like, every moment is like, oh, what's Noah doing? Where is he? And it's not even like I can't go out for those long times. It's now like every 10 seconds, where is he? Because if, if I'm not, if you don't keep his eye on him, he's going to fall and trip and hurt himself in some way. And, you know, I'm going to be in trouble as a father, right? Before God, right? Not before anyone else. Before God, I'm going to be in trouble. 
and you realize, like, my life is not my own anymore. It's a whole never new level of surrender. And, and I'm like, wow, what are the things that take precedent in my life? What are the things that are so hard to surrender that I realize I, I didn't know it was so hard to surrender before? But now with my kid, now instead of feeling begrudging and feeling obligated and feel like, oh my God, I don't want to surrender that. But now it's a joy. I mean, sure, not in, you know, if you ask Erica, is Pastor Bo so excited to take care of Noah and watch him every single day? You know, like, is he? And she'll say no. <laughs> but is there a deep sense of privilege and love and joy? Because Noah is one of the most valuable things that has come into my life. Yes, of course. Of course. Is having a mother-in-law to help take care of Noah is the most wonderful thing? Yes, it is. Amen. <laughs> but I still have that honor. I still have that joy because Jesus Christ, for us as Christians, Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing. For me, Noah is the most valuable son. I mean, he's the only son I had, but he's the most valuable person in this stage of my life that I, I, I'm entrusted with taking care of, second to my wife. And there's this willingness to surrender, this willingness to sacrifice. And I'm wondering if we were to see Jesus Christ as that valuable, that precious, that we would be willing to surrender and sacrifice all things for him. And I don't think you have to wait until you have kids to realize that. You can look around at all the things that you deem valuable, the things that you're willing to do to get that thing, you're willing to sacrifice, you're willing to surrender your time, you're willing to surrender your money, all these things for something greater. Why would we not do that for Jesus Christ? The kingdom of God, it demands everything from us. And the sad part is that we want Christianity light. We want Christianity on top of the things that we already have, the desires that we have. And it makes no sense why, like, whenever we want something new, a new gadget, like, like, how many of you want the pro version? Okay, everyone wants the pro version, right? Like, who wants, who wants iPhone Lite? Anyone want iPhone? You would want to buy iPhone Lite. I mean, no wonder. They don't call it iPhone Lite because it makes it sound like you have a, a puny, weak iPhone. Now, you know, you want iPhone Pro Max. And you want the Apple Watch. No, no more pro anymore. It's Apple Watch Ultra, all right? <laughs> You know, and Apple's late in the game because Samsung already has Samsung Galaxy Ultra, all right? Like, what happened? No one wants light, but oftentimes we, we look at Christianity, it's Christianity light, because what? We just like things on top of our existing lives. We just like putting Jesus on top of all of the existing desires that we already have. And we trick ourselves into thinking, I'm a good Christian because I come to church on Sunday, I go to life room, I do all these things, but our hearts are really not surrendered to Him. I want to challenge us, what does it look like to go all in for Jesus. To say, he demands my life, but it's because he is the most valuable person, the most valuable king in the whole universe. Demands everything, but not only that, we have to look at how it's demonstrated, how the kingdom of God is demonstrated. We're going to read verses 21 to 45, and it's a little bit of a longer passage. I'll try to read it in, in a, an exciting way, but I want to read this whole section because there's three stories here that Mark uses to paint a picture of how Jesus demonstrates the kingdom of God. And, and some, a couple of things, just as you're reading, and hopefully as we go through Mark, you're going to learn how to read scripture. You've you got to notice the things are repeated, words that are repeated. You're going to have to notice parallels, ways that people react in similar ways. Remember, this is written by Mark, and the author has an intention 
And as we discover that intention, it's going to help us understand what he's really trying to communicate and how the kingdom of God is demonstrated. So verse, starting at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him and said, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out, began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. I know it was a little bit longer uh, passage, but here Mark, he gives us three settings. There's three movements in this passage. There's three sets of healings that teaches us something about how the kingdom of God is demonstrated. There's three, and the first is in the synagogue, the second is at the house of Simon and Andrew, and the third is with the leper. And all of these are stories about how the kingdom of God is demonstrated to be greater, to be higher, and to be deeper than anything that the people of that time could understand. And, and just to put it in a context, like if you think about something that is demonstrated, something that is worth it, it has to have a comparable value for you to be able to be willing to give up your whole life for. So Mark does not disappoint. He illustrates the kingdom of God in the most worthy ways. And the first movement that we see in the synagogue is we see Jesus with a greater authority. He's got a greater authority. His authority is de demonstrated immediately. It says immediately. You see that word emphasized over and over. Immediately he does this. Immediately he does that. And immediately he goes in the synagogue and he's teaching and all the people are faced with a, a new teaching, a new authority. In verse 22, he teaches with authority. And in verse 27, he drives out an unclean spirit with 
authority. It was, it was just something amazing, something that went beyond their understanding or their comprehension. They were just like, what is this? It, it doesn't make sense. And the reason why it doesn't make sense, and, and just to put it within our context, is that when they're encountered with authority, it just goes beyond all concept of authority. Now, now in our day and age, we know there, there's two basic types of authority. The first is positional authority, and the second is influence-based authority. Now, in those days, the positional-based authority, those were the scribes. That's why the people were like, wow, there, there's a teacher. He teaches with authority, not like the scribes. Now, how did the scribes teach? With what authority did they teach? All of their authority was borrowed authority. It was positional authority. It was because they knew the Torah, they had the training, and they were the keepers of the law. So they would read the Old Testament, the Torah, and they would say, okay, based on the Torah and what this says, therefore, this is how you need to follow through with that law. And they were given that position, and they oftentimes abused their position, like many of those in positional authority do. They are corrupt, and oftentimes they abuse their, abuse their position. And what do they do? Because they had this reputation, then they would often take the best seat of the synagogues. They would take the first seat of the tables, and Jesus would criticize them for that later. And, and what the, the people were saying is, wow, he's not like the scribes. It's not based on borrowed authority. It's not simply based on his position. It's not simply based on his reading of the law. There's something greater than the law. If anything, what they were imagining was, wow, maybe Jesus is like the law himself. And isn't that what a king is? The king is the law. Whatever the, say, the king says goes. There's a, there's a greater authority than this positional authority than what they were imagining. The second thing was that influential, influence-based authority. Now, I think this is something that we, we give a lot more credit to in our day and age. You know, uh, this generation, we, we're very skeptical of positional authority. But we love influence-based authority. Okay, don't raise your hand. How many of you follow some kind of influencers on social media? Instagram or YouTube? Okay, like my recent thing has been, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? Parent influencers, how to raise your kids, all the great products that you need to buy as a parent. And I'm like, I'm loving it. Like, and, and these things, like, but the, the worst part is when they start marketing products to you. How many of you hate that, right? When the influencers, they're like doing all this stuff and then they're like, oh, by the way, this is a product I love and you should buy it too. Like, I'm just like, I'm so turned off by that. It feels like a sellout. And many of you know, if, especially if you're on YouTube and you, you love those in, YouTube influencers, like how many of those YouTube in, influencers, like they seem so great, and then they say something like really crazy. Like whether it's like, you know, out of character, it's not in one of their YouTube videos, but someone else catches them saying something crazy. And then they post one of those YouTube apology videos. You guys know what those are. And it makes it so much worse. You're like, oh my God, you, should, you shouldn't have said that. And you lose all respect for them. Why? Because what they say doesn't line up with who they are. And all of a sudden, their influence-based authority completely crumbles. And the amazing thing is Jesus is so much greater than that because with what he said, his teaching with authority, he lived it out. He demonstrated it. And he showed his power and authority by what? Casting out this unclean spirit. And it's amazing that, that word astonished, the whole concept, the reaction, the response of the people, it's paralleled in both the first verse in 22 and verse 27. Every single time they were amazed. They were astounded. 
they were just like, there's something different about this Jesus, this king, this kingdom that is being demonstrated in our lives. The kingdom of God is demonstrated when there's an authority greater than yourself. Those are the times that we are amazed, that we are astounded, that we realize we're in the presence of something bigger than us, something greater than us. And the question for us is, when is the last time that you've been amazed by something about what God has done in your life? What is the, when is the last time that God superseded some authority in your life or something that you wanted, something that you thought you had control over that God said, that's not it. But here I am, there's something so much greater. Some of us, we just live like our, you know, like, okay, here we go again. I got to do my soap. I got to go to life group. And we just kind of live like as if we're Christian, but really we are the own authorities of our own lives. And, and whether it's we pursue after the own things that we think that we can based on our own control and our own ability, based on our position or based on our own influence. And we never have faith to believe like, hey, maybe God could do something greater in my life than what I think he can. And we limit God. We limit Christianity. And we're, in fact, we're not actually experiencing the kingdom of God demonstrated in our lives. That's not the first one. That's only the first one. The second one is that the house of Simon, there's a greater purpose. He demonstrates a greater purpose in the kingdom of God. He immediately goes to the house of Simon and Andrew. And there's, you'll notice there's multiple healings. He first heals Simon's mother-in-law. And then all of a sudden, somehow, this crowd comes. And then he heals them all the door. And you're wondering, like, huh, how did the crowd knew, know that they were there? I mean, sure, maybe someone saw them. Like, oh, hey, he's at Simon's house. Let's go all to Simon's house and go find him. Now, my hunch and my opinion is that it was probably Simon that told everyone, hey, Jesus is here. Because you've you got to wonder, you look at that whole segment of that story, because he goes to Simon's mother-in-law, he heals her, they somehow come to the door, and then he heals all of them, he's gaining popularity, and then Jesus leaves to this desolate place, and then Simon's like, where did you go? And you wonder, like, what was Simon's intention throughout that whole situation? And you realize when you look into the passage, and when you look into Jewish history, you realize, what did Jews imagine the Messiah or the, the, the Savior or the Rescuer to be. They imagined to him to be this conquering king, this person who would gain all these followers, who would be so popular that the whole region of Judea and, and all their people would rise up against the Roman conquerors and say, we are our own nation state. We're going to run our own business or run our own country. And so Simon, he probably thought, oh, Jesus, he's, he's, well, Jesus, he's for real. He's, he's, he can heal all these people. He, so let's increase his popularity. Let's go bring more people so he can do more healings. He can gain in popularity and then do his thing. And when we read that section in verse 36, it shows Simon's true heart. Verse 36, it talks about how Simon searched for him. Now it's like, okay, Simon was just searching for him. You read a couple other translations in the NABR, it says he pursued him. In the Amplified, it said he searched for him everywhere looking anxiously. Now, why would anyone look for Jesus anxiously? Is it because he was worried that Jesus didn't have enough food? He thought Jesus was lost? He needed to rescue Jesus from himself? I don't think so. There was something else that motivated Simon because he was confused why Jesus wasn't buying into the popularity contest. And in the NRSV, it says he hunted him. 
It's like the olden day version of sliding into DMs, right? You're hunting. He was like, I got to get this person. Like, he's, he's, he's everything. Because Simon is this, has this purpose in mind for Jesus saying, Jesus has got to fulfill my understanding of what the Messiah should be. He's got to gain all these followers and he's got to do the things that the Messiah, in Simon's perspective, should do. But Jesus breaks that. He completely demolishes that understanding instead of trying to build more followers, instead of just like being there to heal more and more people and draw the town. What does he do? He goes off into a desolate place. And he says, my purpose is not to gain a popularity contest. It's not to amass a followers in terms of quantity of number. He says, my purpose is what? So that I must go on to the next town. So that I can continue to proclaim the kingdom of God. So that I can fulfill scripture. So that I could be the thing that God has called me to be instead of according to your human purpose. Jesus had a higher purpose and Simon was confused. The kingdom of God is demonstrated. And when it's demonstrated in a greater or a higher purpose, then what it causes us to respond is in confusion. It exposes that we don't have God's purposes in mind. And my question for us is, when is the last time we were confused? When is the last time that we recognized that what we think is God's purpose is really just our purpose and God has a different purpose? When's the last time you got angry and frustrated at God because something didn't go the way that you wanted it to go. You didn't get the right job that you wanted to get. You didn't get into the class that you wanted to get. You didn't get into the class that that girl was in or that guy was in or the correct major or the right connect or anything, you, you name it. You, anything that did not go the way that you wanted to go. Does it cross our minds that in that confusion, in that questioning, in that frustration, in that discouragement, that just maybe God's purposes are higher than ours. His ways are greater than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And the kingdom is demonstrated not only with a greater authority, not only with a higher purpose, with a deeper love, with the leper. We notice that the leper, he comes, and this is the third setting, the third healing, he comes to Jesus, imploring him, please, please, if you're willing, make me clean. And just some context for us, Jews weren't supposed to associate with lepers. And if anything, the way lepers were supposed to worship God was to keep themselves separate. They lived in separate communities. They were ostracized. They were marginalized because they were unclean. Any skin disease could infect the whole community. Leviticus 13 verses 45 to 46 says the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of their head hang loose, he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease, he is unclean, he shall live alone, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is what love looked like. To love God was to keep yourself separate, not to mix. And it was the way the community loved the leper by keeping them separate. The way that leper loved the community was by keeping them separate and saying, unclean, unclean. And what does Jesus do? His love was deeper than expected. What did he do? He, he, he was moved to pity and compassion. He felt for them. He understood where he was coming from. He touched them. That, that was like rule number one not to do. This is not how you love a leper. You don't touch them. 
but he touched him and he healed him. And not only that, he, he responds with, with willingness. When no one else would be willing to help this leper, what does Jesus do? He's willing. Now you're like, well, okay, what is leprosy? Like, all this kind of doesn't make sense. It, it, it's as if, like, you were one of the people when, when, when COVID first broke out, you're like, sign me up. I want to be on the front lines. I want to be the delivery boy for the quarantine hotels for all the food and stuff like that. Some of you are like, oh, it's not that bad. I got Omicron before. Like, would you be willing to do that when Delta was around? Would you be willing to do that when SARS was around? Would you be willing to do that in the Middle Ages when the bubonic plague was going around? Some of you are like, what's the bubonic plague? Okay. <laughs> Pretty much killed millions of people in Europe in the Middle Ages. They had no medicine, no you know, med medical help. Just millions of people just died. And you know who were the people that stayed around to help the people? The Christians. The Christians were. Now we have our face masks, now we have our shield, now we have, you know, this protective equipment, like here I am helping these people. But Jesus demonstrates a deeper love. But you know what's crazy is in the story that after receiving this kind of love, what does the leper do? He disobeys Jesus. <laughs> he disobeys Jesus. And I think that's the tension for us. And what does he do? He does everything that feels right in his own heart. I've received this love, and now I got to do whatever I feel is right. And explicitly, he does, he does, number one, Jesus tells him not to tell anyone. He goes tells everyone. And number two, Jesus tells him to show himself to the priest to fulfill the law of Moses, and it doesn't record that he does that at all. And I think this is the challenge, is that when we experience love, is our response to love God and to worship Him back and to obey Him? Or is it to go and just receive that love, be entitled and feel like, oh, we should be loved and do whatever we want with that? God's kingdom's demonstration of love, what should it do? It exposes our lack of love for Him and for His kingdom. It exposes it. It reveals that we don't have love. It reveals that we love ourselves more than anything else. It reveals that we care more about ourselves than, than the kingdom of God or Jesus or, anything, or anyone else for that matter. That we're so self-absorbed and we're so self-centered that we make even the most lavish demonstrations of love for us as something that is for ourselves and not for God's greater kingdom. And my hope is that as God's kingdom is, is demonstrated, his greater authority is demonstrated, his, his, higher, his higher purpose is demonstrated, his deeper love is demonstrated, it would, if anything, just humble us to say, God, your kingdom is so much more worthy, so much more valuable, greater than the queen, greater than any accomplishment, greater than anything in this whole world, that it, it, it demands my whole life. The kingdom of God demonstrated in such glory and power that there is nothing like it. There's nothing like it and that I, I, I want to be willing to be able to, to give my whole life for that. To give my whole life for this greater authority, this higher purpose, and this deeper love that I can't even, I cannot even reciprocate. Now, it might feel like it leaves us in a very kind of discouraged state of like, oh, here's the kingdom of God, it's so worthy and we can't do anything. But this is where Mark doesn't leave us hanging. Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He, he shows us how 
This is what the kingdom demanded our whole lives. He demonstrates how the kingdom of God is more worthy and more valuable than we could ever imagine. And, and, and if anything, we are, not, we are not worthy of his kingdom. We don't deserve his kingdom anyway. If anything, we should be banished from his kingdom by the way we respond to it, by the way we react to it. Not only these Jews or these people, but us as we apply it into our lives. But the amazing thing is that his grace is always the end of the story. And when we look into why the kingdom was disguised, why it is disguised, he shows us and he reveals this to us. There's a couple of reasons. The first thing that we see is that one thing that's consistent throughout the whole three stories that we see is that Jesus consistently does not allow people to reveal his identity. He just doesn't. In the synagogue, what does he say to the demon? He says, be silent. Come out of him. Because the demon knew who he was. In the second story with Simon, he doesn't allow, again, the demons to permit to speak about him. And he also runs away, goes to a desolate place because he doesn't want to be recognized. He doesn't want to be identified. And in the third situation, what does he tell the leper? Don't go and tell people about me. And what, what the leper does, he does that anyway. Jesus is constantly saying, don't promote your idea of what the kingdom looks like. Because everyone had their own idea of what authority looked like, of what purpose looked like, of what love looked like. And Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. And the reason why he's not allowing people to permit people to tell them, tell others about him is because they got it all wrong. They had misunderstandings of who he was and what he came to do. And the reason why he disguises it is because he knows that that is our very heart. And he's exposing our selfishness. He's exposing our self-centeredness. And he's trying to get us to say, maybe I'm wrong. Just, just, just maybe, just, just maybe, I might have Christianity all wrong. I might have Jesus all wrong. I might think I'm following him. I might think I'm in the right. I might think that I'm doing this all correctly. But Jesus is saying, hey, you don't know me as well as you think you do. You don't understand my heart as, as well as you think you do. You don't live out this Christian faith as well as you think you do. And he's calling us to what? To repentance. He's calling us to say, hey, just maybe your ideas are not my ideas. And just maybe you've been following your own path. You've been going along your own direction. And what you need to do is you need to turn around and follow me and realize the kingdom is so much bigger, so much greater, and so much higher, and so much deeper than anything you've ever imagined. And in, in, some, in many ways, that is, that is God's grace for us. That is God's mercy for us. That here we are going on our own path, our own direction, and we have no idea that it's leading to destruction. We have no idea that it's leading us to a hopeless and a discouraged and a jaded and apathetic and a, and, a, and a toilsome existence. And here Jesus is saying, I'm disguising part of who I am because I don't want you to be so confident in what you think I am. I want you to get the point that maybe, just maybe, you're wrong, running on the wrong track. And that you need a bigger idea of who the kingdom of God is really about. And I'm praying that this will cause us to repent. It will cause us to, like we saw in the beginning, to leave our nets, to leave our family, 
to give up everything, to leave our understanding, our own understanding of what the kingdom of God is about and open up our minds and say, maybe, okay, Lord, if it's not what I know, then Lord, show me. And you know what Jesus' invitation is? It's to follow me. Just to take that one step, to go into the unknown, to have a, a step of faith, to realize maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I, I don't have all things understood or set. And maybe following God is this scary but thrilling ride of following Him every step of the way, every single day, without knowing everything and how the story ends, but trusting in the one that we're following rather than the thing that we think the destination is. And you'll notice that's why he says the gospel is the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and he talks about the gospel of God. He doesn't talk about, you know, all this destination of the future. He, the kingdom of God, it's a person. It's Jesus as the king, and he is the kingdom of God. His lifestyle is the kingdom of God. And as we follow him, that's where we're going to discover this true life. But there's one more reason that Jesus disguises the kingdom of God. And the amazing part is that in his disguise, he's demonstrating the kingdom of God as he disguises it. Because Jesus could have said, hey, I'm this wonderful authority, everyone should follow me. Jesus could have said, hey, I'm this awesome leader, everyone, popularity contest, I have the right purpose and come and follow me. He could have said, hey, I have this wonderful love and tell everyone about my love and this is how great I am and come and follow me. But Jesus didn't do that. By disguising himself, by not revealing his identity, what did he do? He came to demonstrate the kingdom of God in quiet submission, in quiet surrender, living out suffering, living out this, this whole lifestyle of being misunderstood. Even his disciples didn't really understand who he was, and even until the cross. And Jesus decided every single day to be able to say, I'm going to live the kingdom of God even though no one understands, even though no one knows, even though I'm not getting any affirmation or approval or praise or any benefit from, from this world, but I'm still going to live this life that's about suffering, about obscurity, about being in the background, about nothing that the world claims as good or as popular or as significant or valuable so that I can demonstrate what kind of life what kind of suffering that not only my disciples will live, but what life I will live for the people that I love for so much. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. And when he finally starts to reveal his purposes in Mark 10, verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like this, is, this is the amazing news that we we have this kingdom of God that is so valuable, so great, so worthy that we are so unworthy of it. Yet, the way it's demonstrated, the way it's disguised, the way that Jesus lives it out, he takes the whole cost upon himself so that we can enter into the kingdom of God because he is the one who suffered for us. Like That is, that is, that is just mind-boggling that there would be a God that would do that for us. There would be this mysterious time that is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. He's calling us to repent and believe, but what he's calling us to believe is that he is the suffering servant who gives us access to his kingdom. And that's why my prayer is that we would be preparing for the kingdom of God 
which means repenting and believing in the gospel, believing, repenting and believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the culmination of all that this leads to. There's just two things that I want to finish off with. There's two simple next steps. It's just to repent and believe. That's it. Just repent and believe. What is repentance? Like I was sharing earlier, it's you're walking in a certain direction and literally you just turn around because you realize that's the wrong direction. It means you're walking away from God and you turn around and realize, shoot, I'm walking away from God and I need to walk back toward God. And, and, and for you to turn around, what do you have to do? You have to admit, you have to acknowledge that you're wrong. You have to apologize. And not only do you apologize, but then you actually do something about it to go the other way. That's the first step. Repentance. And if there's any way that God has been speaking to us about throughout this time, realizing like, God, I've been going on my own assumptions about what your kingdom is like, what being a Christian is like, what following you is like, and I've realized I made it all about myself. Then repentance says, okay, God, shoot, I've been making it all about myself. And I'm sorry, I mean, I, 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 it is my fault and I made everything about myself and, and Lord, I didn't want to do that and I know it breaks your heart and God, I, I don't deserve anything. And I'm sorry and I, and I apologize and nothing can, nothing can make up for it and all I can do is just say, I'm, what, can I, what can I do, what can I say? I, I have nothing. But to turn back to say, God, I, I want to love you. I, I want to make you the center of my life. I want you to be king in my heart. And the second part of believing is he doesn't just leave you in the state of limbo of like, oh God, I feel so bad about myself, but I'm trying, but I don't know if I can really do it. He says, believe. Believe in the Son of God. Believe that Jesus has died. And when he died, he had his nails in his arms, in his hands, in his feet. And all of that suffering and torture and pain was so that you do not have to suffer the consequence and the punishment that we all ought to suffer and pay for. That we could believe in him. And believing in him is not just this intellectual belief. It says, it means believing with our whole lives. What does it mean to believe in the Son of God when you wake up? What does it mean to believe in the Son of God when you're at work? What does it mean to believe in the Son of God when you're in a conflict with your family? What does it mean to believe in the Son of God when you're serving but you don't want to be here? What does it mean to believe in the Son of God when, when nothing is going right in your life? It's not a passive intellectual belief, but it, it is a belief that invades our whole lives, every aspect of who we are. To say, God, I trust in you. And I believe that you are for, if you're my king, I'm just going to take one step forward. And I'm just going to take another step forward. I don't know what the exact end destination is going to be, but I trust that you're going to lead me to your kingdom. Can we stand? I'm just going to respond. These kind of messages are not the... As a preacher, I don't like preaching these kind of messages. 
I, I like preaching the messages on the love of God. Boasting in your weaknesses because it makes you feel really good. But when it comes face to face with this is who Jesus is, this is what Christianity is really about. This is what the kingdom of God is about. And, and if some of you are like borderline questioning, like, oh man, have I really been following God as I ought to? And this is not my intention, but maybe some of us are like, am I really Christian? In some sense, that's a good thing. My goal is not to make you question like your salvation and whether or not God really has secured you, whether or not he, you, know, you really believe Jesus is the Son of God and you know, your baptism, all that kind of... I'm, I'm not here to question your salvation. But my hope is that it causes us to pause and to think about, is the Christianity that I live every single day really reflective of the Christianity that Jesus lived out? in scripture? Or have I been deceiving myself thinking that I've been living this good Christian life all the while pursuing my own selfish agenda? And my prayer is that we will come in repentance and belief because this is the gospel. He doesn't say be perfect. He says repent and believe. Repent and believe. You're constantly going to be going off into your own way but the only thing you could do is repent and believe because that's the only hope that we have. And I want to invite us to do just that. I just want to invite us just to spend some time repenting, confessing, admitting, apologizing before God and recognizing that we can't do anything. It's only His grace that we believe in His Son who died on the cross, that we have any ability to stand before him, communicate with him, experience love from him, and be used by him. That's it. And so can I, can I just invite us just for the next some moments? Can we just repent? If God is speaking to you about just certain things that he's saying, this is not of my kingdom. This is your own little kingdom that you're trying to build. Let's repent of that. Let's confess that. And let's be honest with him. And I want to invite us. I know sometimes it's easy just to kind of mull over things and think through things in our own minds. But you, those of you who, you know, you tend to that, you know what happens is it just, it just gets into this loop and this spiral. And you, you, just things are just not clear. If anything, if you, if you need to just write things down, then write things, if you need to speak it out, sometimes just verbalizing it helps open or helps organize your thoughts and what you're actually confessing and repenting of, then do that. And let's just spend the next couple of moments doing that, coming before Him, asking, Lord, your kingdom in my life, not mine. Come on, let's just spend some time in repentance and prayer. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.